a booger up they nose. Somebody's got a booger, a booger up they nose. Now, for those of you who don't know, that is the Spartan Legion marching band's start to the song Talking Out the Side of Your Neck by Cameo. It's one of my favorite things because we find it very funny, but other people sometimes don't understand what we're saying, so they keep repeating it throughout the course of the song. But I'm joined with a couple of people that I want to kind of ask them, what was your first experience with the song Talking Out the Side of Your Neck by Cameo? Jeff, I, I know you do you do a lot of band stuff, but what was your first experience with that song? Playing it in volleyball band in college. Which is a lovely time to be the first time hearing a song is when Let me ask you, you a question. are playing it. At Purdue, do they <laughs> bring their pep band to the volleyball games there is a specific volleyball pep band that i was in one of the years um there's there are separate pep bands for uh women's volleyball for men's basketball and women's now that's amazing as well. I and the marching band i did not a know that at norfolk state we had a volleyball team but we did not send our band josiah i know you've been at two different universities what was your first experience with this song I don't know that I ever heard either band play it, um, honestly. Like, just don't know that I have. Like, I mean, I was talking about before we started recording, Mississippi State had sort of a set-in-their-ways band director when I was there, and so they did some interesting things, but it was it was pretty, pretty run-of-the-mill, so they didn't do a lot of really cool stuff like that. So, honestly, it's been pretty recent that I've really experienced it i probably heard it around but like knowingly experienced it it was not from any of the bands that uh at my schools that means we have to now go to eat to bina to hear it we've got to go to Alcorn to go. hear it and then i'm coming to jackson so that i can hey, hear it with you now here it is we got some guests mountaineer guests <laughs> i'm so i have been I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull the curtain back a little bit. Mountain Guest and I have, uh, we have decided our resolution for 2023. I said, I'm going to learn Photoshop. And Mountain Deer Guest said that she would learn it with me. So we have kind of a pact to get that done. But Mountaineer Guest, <laughs> what was your first experience with the song Talking Out the Side of Your Neck? At some point in the early 2000s, the Pride of West Virginia started playing it as like a something just exciting, something exciting just happened now, Sting. And I didn't know what the song was. I just thought it was like this weird, -da 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 -da. like, I'm like, okay, sure, it's that song. It wasn't until I was uh, reading some articles about it a few years later that I'm like, oh, that's the song. <laughs> So that was the first time. So tell me, I, I've listened to uh, the the uh, the Pride of the, of West Virginia because I grew up in Piscataway. I would go to many blowout seventeen in a row before the Big East collapsed, and I've heard this band, and it always blew me away because they, they were huge compared to all the bands I had seen. Yeah, they're huge. How did they? How do you think they came to find this song? What do you think brought that? Because there are two HBCUs in West Virginia, and I'm not sure either one of them has a band. I don't know if they do either. And it's the pride is enormous. The pride fluctuates between like 350, 400 members. It's one of the biggest bands in the country. So I would imagine somebody brought it in from somewhere. And uh, those those stingers that they do, they have uh, a, a whole bunch of them. 
are often a way for them to introduce a song that they want to do a full version of. They may have, and I may have missed it, but I know that the stinger lives Awesome. On. I love to hear that. And now I want to bring in our Dartmouth guest, who someone who I'm very close with. I've known them since I first turned on Discord, uh, have talked to them many times about fatherhood, being a parent, having child, uh, children of our own. And of course, when the great Miak Ivy League uh, kickoff begins in 2075. Dartmouth and Norfolk State are going to watch as all these other schools oh, yeah. really embarrass themselves to prove how pretentious they are because we both love green. So tell me, what was your first experience with Talking Out the Side of Your Neck by Cameo? My first experience was literally when it got banned at LSU. <laughs> I was on Reddit and I I was just starting to really get into college football internet at that point. And I saw this thing like they're banning this song. I'd never heard it before. Pulled up a recording. This is an awesome song. I wonder why they're. Oh, I know why they're banning it now. Oh, that cheer. Okay, cool. Okay, I get that now. And then the whole thing that happened afterwards, I happened to have a friend in grad school uh, doing music with me that went to LSU and she had very strong. Well, she pro or against it, if I can ask. So that was. (laughs) <laughs> oh she was she loved the song she was so angry with the, the administration band got back so i'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna give right. a little personal anecdote and explain so i visited norfolk state um the spring of my senior year in high school uh i had been told about norfolk state by my hampton institute alumni aunt uh and she said you know go check them out it's it's a great place it's a great school and so my father, uh, 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 my Vietnam vet dad, Pops Mayhem, looked at the maps at 13 is the straightest route. My mother said a straight line is the best way to get there. We <laughs> packed up with my little sister um, and my four brothers stayed with our uncle for the for that weekend. And we all drove six hours straight and we get to the hotel and we unpack. And my dad's like, all right, we're going on campus in the morning. So we, we show up and we go into this campus and uh, they they the Norfolk State University is very, very smart. They took the parents and put them in one room and said, we're going to show you how great our school is. And they took all the prospective students and they put them mm-hmm. in a building known as Harrison uh, B. Wilson, uh, which has a giant uh, stage for performances and ballroom. And they put us all in there and said, all right, students, we're going to have a good time while your parents out there learn about how great the school is. And I'm sitting in this giant stadium, excuse me, a giant stage, just maybe seats 400 people, uh, upper and lower deck. And I'm sitting front row thinking, oh, I'm, I'm at the front of the action. I'm excited. And I had a gold sweatband. I'll never forget it because I wanted to say I'm, I'm, I love Norfolk State. I got a gold sweatband. And to prove how wrong you were about things, the Legion came in the back not the stage and they started blowing from the back of the so everyone had to turn and i'll never forget it because they came in chanting and then they stopped and they all point and what that is is that is norfolk state's the legion pointing at brown hall which was the first building built at norfolk state and so everyone who's ever been at norfolk state they know brown hall and so we always point in the direction of brown hall and that's what you'll see uh when we begin playing it but they they start singing and you hear oh and then you'll hear the 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 uh the drum major mr spartan he'll count off and then you'll hear bum bum bottom and then we and i mean the all of us just erupt. we had never seen anything like that most of us particularly myself and that was it i was i was hooked and i was sold and i said all right i'm home i'm home I'm where I, i'm everywhere i want to be and so that's where i got it that was a one experience recommend to anybody 
So I think that's going to be our cold open. Love it. And so welcome, welcome, welcome uh, everyone to the latest episode. This is episode 14 of Feed Your Mascot. My name is Blue, and I'm joined by the other two hosts, and we've got two surprise guests this week. So I'm going to go ahead and bring Jeff in so we can get to our guests. And Jeff, how are you doing today? I heard you had some lightning delays, like a, like a, like a football game in Metal Bleachers. What's going on out there in the great state of Indiana? I was supposed to do a triathlon this morning um, until about 15 minutes after the planning meeting or where you normally get a, you know, this is what the course is, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, 15 minutes late, they're like, so we, we're canceling the swim because it was pouring rain and there was lightning. We're going to try and do uh, a run, bike run, which is called a duathlon. Very importantly, it's not a biathlon because none of us had skis or guns. Um, <laughs> and then about an hour later, they're like, so we've got to cancel the bike because it was still raining. We might just do the run. And it was still thundering. And I'm like, no, I'm just going to go home. I've been standing outside for two hours and I'm cold. I'm glad you made it back safely. I... Well-known fact, I am a member of the national of a national Pan-Hellenic Council organization, uh, Phi Beta Sigma, but I have a lot of experience with members of Kappa Kappa Psi from Norfolk State. Tell us about your sweatshirt real quick as best you can. These are my Kappa Kappa Psi letters from college, which is the National uh, Band Service Fraternity, um, where which is A, where I met my significant other, and B, uh, did a lot of a lot of great friends, a lot of great uh, service, a lot of carrying large instruments up stairs because there weren't always uh, elevators in places. So I'd like to remind everyone to build freight elevators. Yes, please. And also, Purdue Musical Organizations, pl- please stop doing the Christmas show so that we can <laughs> use the lift for our concerts. Please stop it. You can. You are singing. You don't need the whole stage. We need to move large objects. So if you're going to take up the whole stage, please help us move the large objects. Thank you. This is a very specific beef I have with PMO, which is the choir and Glee Club group. Um, yeah. We're nothing if very specific about our, our griefs here. But <laughs> the connection between Kappa Kappa Psi, and I will, I will get lambasted if I get this wrong, but I believe pretty strongly that it might have been founded at an agricultural school in Oklahoma, possibly in Stillwater. Is that... Correct, Josiah? That is accurate. Yeah, oh, there look you at go. that. Yeah. I learned something. For, so speaking yeah. of that, I'm going to talk to one of our uh, <laughs> one of our biggest Pokes fans. I will say the biggest Pokes fan now that uh, he's on the on the podcast with me. Tell me, Josiah, how you been? What you up to? And what, what are you planning on doing for the now that the 4th is gone? The 4th of July is over. Uh, not been up to much. Had a stomach bug run through the house, and uh, that was 
it's always a good time. Um, feeling, I'm feeling fine now, and so are the kiddos. So, you know, not not a whole lot that we want to report on the air about that. Um, but yeah, mostly doing okay. No, no rain or weather delays. I'm sorry, Jeff, that you had to rest today instead of uh, destroying your body as usual. But uh, you know, it's a it's a sacrifice you got to make sometimes. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's about where we're at. Sacrificing yourself by resting up for the next event. Mm-hmm. Remember, folks, get that rest when you can. I'm going to now bring in some of these. Again, I've known these two folks a long time. I've recorded with them. I've talked with them. I've commiserated with them. Um, and so I'm going to bring in our Mountaineer guests and actually give them a name. She goes by Beth, big fan of West Virginia University and Thiel, pronounced Teal College. And I'm glad you put that in there so that I get it correct. But Beth of the Sickos Committee, welcome to Feed Your Mascot. Why don't you go ahead and uh, speak to the people and then give us your factoid about yourself? Sure. Um, Well, it's great to be here. I'm really excited. uh, And it's certainly very grateful for the invitation today, Blue. Um, Since we're talking a little bit of music Greek letters, I should note that I'm a patroness member of Sigma Alpha Iota. Um, which is what happens when you go to college way, 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 way late for a second time and everybody wants you to rush and you're just too old for that. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's one of the, it's one of the women's, uh, music fraternities that was founded up in Michigan. Um, my factoid is that I, uh, my time to completion on thousand piece jigsaw puzzles is actually competitive at the world level. I can complete I can complete one somewhere between usually an hour and 50 and two hours and 10 minutes um, world records like a, uh, like an hour 40 and I have to get real lucky with the puzzle draw to be able to complete one that fast. That's amazing. My mother, Mom Mayhem, loves putting together thousand piece puzzles and it takes her several days and she has a nice little mat she rolls up. But uh, that is amazing. I have to tell her that I know someone who is a competitive puzzle uh, jigsaw puzzle creator. Uh, I wanted to I ask this question because I love football. I know it's about blocking and tackling, according to some folks. It's a game of inches to others. Uh, some call it the great American gridiron catastrophe. But I tell everyone the game of football is about rules because that's the only thing we care about. The only person who talks to the stadium is the referee. So I want to ask, what is your favorite obscure rule of football and why? So my favorite obscure rule is that the snap from the center does not have to go between the center's legs. They can snap it to the side. They can snap it, however, as long as it is in one continuous motion pointing backwards. And I wish that we exploited that rule way more than we do. I will say this. I uh, I know that the center also doesn't have to be in the middle and you can have unbalanced lines. Stanford used to do this a lot uh, under... Uh, Coach Shaw before uh, he retired, and then, of course, uh, current Michigan head coach Jim Harbaugh. But um, one of the things I've always found funny is when the quarterback will just turn to the sideline and walk parallel to the line of scrimmage, (laughs) and then they do a wildcat snap. I've always found that to be very funny myself. I also want to introduce our second guest from the Sickos Committee. This is one of the founding members of the Sickos Committee and the host of their podcast. This person I've known, like I said, a long time. I I talk to them almost daily and love whenever they put my little name in gold so that I know they're talking to me. Uh, But that's going to be Jordan from the Sickos Committee. Welcome. And uh, why don't you talk about your uh, fandoms? And uh, spoiler alert, they're all green. (laughs) Yeah, uh, I... My fandom is really whatever's on. I am a, a, truly a college football agnostic, which is why the singles committee works so well for me because I have no real strong loyalties either way. 
my undergrad was at Dartmouth. They are, you know, that's FCS football, but not going to playoffs. Fun to go to, but not going to make waves. Hey, same. Hey, I <laughs> yeah, love that for you. <laughs> there you go. And then uh, my all my grad work was at North Texas. So that's a whole other issue. I have been to a total of one North Texas game in both of my degrees there. <laughs> I tried to go to two, but the first, that one, I got too drunk at the tailgate and didn't make it into the game. So these things happen. Yeah, that sounds like grad school. Why don't you go and give us your factoid? Yeah, my factoid is that all of my schools for higher ed actually have green in their mascot name, not just their color, but I am a mean green and a big green. As someone who loves to behold green, I love that so much. That's say. Tell us about your favorite rule, if you don't mind. Sure. I Over the Sigos Committee, we've been doing a lot of work where we go, what are the best teams of all time for teams who are below 500 of all time? And so we've been going back deep into the histories, and we get around where football rules weren't as codified, and right around the forward pass invention, things get really weird. So when the forward pass first came in, they actually had the rule where if the ball hit the ground without being touched on a forward pass, that's a turnover. You just hand it to the other team. So forward passes, even though they were trying to open the game up, this was still an awful idea. <laughs> hey, only three things can happen when you throw the ball and two of them bad. I want to stump for this because I love ancient football. Uh, I talk with uh, Jeff and Josiah about it. It's one of the things that I... As someone who loves the sport, I love to go back when the barnstorming era is going on. I, I talk about that a lot. Um, I do want to ask you, though, Jordan. Yeah. Is there a possibility, and I've been talking to the commission about this, is there a possibility that we may be talking about the best season of a small, underfunded HBCU in the Delta, in the Mississippi Delta? I mean, I think so. <laughs> we'll call that a tease in the business, folks. We're going to talk about what we're going to talk about today. And our appetizers, where did bands come from? And I brought three of the best people to talk about it, and one of the best people to talk about how cultural infrastructure makes that happen. We're then going to talk about our main course, which, folks, we're going to talk about Neck and how to get it. And it's coming from a band called Cameo, and they talked about, the, the album is She's Strange. But we're going to play you a little bit of that song, and then some of the versions that made it happen. And then finally... We've got a nice little dessert, kind of something ephemeral to leave you with as we leave is, what do we like to see bands do? And I've asked them to bring examples. So enough of y'all talking to me. My two co-hosts have been chomping at the pin to get to this. Jeff, you've really done, as always, I'm blown away by the work you put in. Why don't you go ahead and uh, really prove why Purdue has the biggest bass drum in all the land and tell us <laughs> where do marching bands even come from? Yeah, so... In the U.S. context, the reason why most schools and attached to football teams you have bands is most schools in post-war period had ROTC. Or post-Civil War period that football came into being also had ROTC. ROTC, you had bands. Why did you have bands continuously with ROTC? That is something we can blame the Ottoman Empire for. Um, <laughs> like lots of things in the uh, the last 600 years, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um. But no, so the introduction of bands into a military context came from the Ottoman Empire as a mix of a method of signaling. So if you had multiple units, a way to signal and give messages back and forth is you could use um, drums or horns that ha make loud noises that carry over long, relatively long distances so that you could have a method of communication before you had uh, radios. Um, there have been other solutions, you know, people raised flags 
um, for stuff like this. You could have runners go back and forth, although that you assume that the person running back and forth doesn't get shot and it's not nearly as quick as a sound. That's where we get the marathon from. So that's why Jeff runs so much. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you have that development and instruments kind of the first time they show up for this use is around the 11th century. At least the first time that there's documentation of this use is in the 11th century. It's possible much older, but if you have instruments that are wooden or other organic matter, which is what you know, most early drums are, um, and sometimes a lot of flutes, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, those are typically of wood that will degrade. You don't necessarily have those in archaeological evidence, but the first kind of written evidence is the 11th century in the Ottoman Empire. That kind of spreads as the Ottoman Empire attempted to take over Europe, and they spread many things into the European world, like coffee as well. Um, but also the concept of band and marching band um, that kind of was able to then take hold in Austria, where the Ottoman Empire would kind of stop their conquests and then spread throughout Europe in later centuries. Um, there are a couple of great museums in Vienna of uh, historic in- musical instruments that are really cool if you're ever in Vienna. Uh, Vienna, a wonderful city. Um but then, obviously, that comes oh, over to the U.S. Can I jump in real fast and say a couple of oh, things? Oh, yeah. So the really cool thing about this, uh, they were called the Janissary Corps, which was the, the Turkish band corps. And a couple of cool things. First off, you got to understand the sound they had. It was this, they played not sham. A sham is a relative of an oboe. If you know of an oboe sound, it is that piercing, clear sound. But these things were not precision instruments. You would put your whole face on the reed and blast the sound. And there would be... Dozens of these people with this piercing sound with the symbols. Zildjian, the symbol company, is an Ottoman company. And we still have to this day. And so this sound was just, like, I can't imagine sitting in Vienna, knowing the Ottomans are on their way, and all you hear for days is this droning oboe sound and percussion. And even after all this came through, like, this became the pop music of the time. You had... Mozart and all these guys pick up this Janissary sound, adding cymbals to their music, adding drums to their music. This was all Turkish or Ottoman. This was like from way over there. So it it really got into the whole just like vibe of it. In fact, there are pianos that have what they call a Janissary stop, where you have a piano, you're playing it, and on pianos, you have the pedals. And so there used to be a pedal where you hit it and literally it would hit a drum and a cymbal inside the piano at the same time, because that was considered to be like, oh, that's the cool sound now. So this whole thing, this this Janissary sound infects all of classical music, all of Western music, and it was not a Western thing. It was an Ottoman thing. It was very much from that part. And the Ottomans got it, we don't know for sure, but stuff from further east. It's that east to west cultural migration that goes through, and that's where it sort of came from. That whole part of band history is absolutely fascinating. Yeah, it really is. I, I find it fascinating because uh, the Ottoman Empire, spoiler alert, is going to fi- figure into something very important to how HBCU bands get started. Um, but I want to ask Josiah really quickly, let's talk about the cultural infrastructure that they're describing here. So we're talking about a military style band either used for communication within that military or intimidation of the enemy, as Jeff was pointing out. How does that sort of musical framework go from entertainment of the masses to specific military application? 
Do you mean within the context of like football itself or just in a broad sense? <clears throat> I'm talking more broadly because I, mm. I, I want to wait to talk about the football sense of yeah, things yeah. until after we get to uh, Jeff's next bullet point. I mean, you know, you always have to have a rallying cry to work around. Um, and sure. when you're conscripting people, morale is a big it's a big thing you have to manage. I mean, when you look at like the Revolutionary War, there's always depictions of someone with a drum and a fife. And that's not a big group of people. They're not intimidating you. But, you know, it's this it's a skill that these people have that you can sort of boost the morale around a little bit. And if morale is low in an army, you might as well pack it in because it, you know, a well-motivated military is going to perform at a much higher level than what, you know, other than someone who's not. Um, and especially when you have ragtag groups like the American military. Um, the in, Continental yeah, Army. Continental <laughs> Army. Um, you know, th that kind of thing can be, it, it won't win you a war, but it will at least help keep spirits below the, you know, bedrock bottom. Um, so that sort of thing, I mean, you know, and people love music, man. Like, it, it's been around for so long. Um, and it, all the different developments when you go, you know, like you guys are talking about the tracking of bands, but even just music history itself, when you go back way through, like, you know, you have monastic atonal chants and stuff, and you track all the way up to more modern instrumentation. Um, it's, you know, it's going to follow us everywhere. People are going to just sing, they're going to chant, and if they find an instrument, they're going to start playing it, whether there's intention there or not. And it's, I think it's just a way that we keep our spirits up to some degree. And Beth, I saw you wanted to jump in really quickly. Yeah, please feel free. And then Jeff, you take it from there. <laughs> um, I was just going to say that one of the one of the interesting things that we see, especially in in the military band culture, as that starts to come through, is that ability to to pull a core together and have them look more intimidating because they are all moving to the same beat. Um, you know, we see that in, lo in lots of different types of marching. The whole idea of we are moving as a formation and we're all together. Great point. We get that from from our percussion friends. And you also build in very much in a lot of this of how um, work songs and sh sea shanties mm, work. Mm -hmm. uh, Absolutely. It it keeps you going mm. mentally and keeps you together as mm -hmm. well as you can have a actual functional element of this is the beat at which you need to do some action. Um, whether that's mm -hmm. marching, whether that's... I mean... Yeah, you've got... Going. Things on... Yeah. <laughs> Sure. And you'll notice when you look at a lot of that stuff, it's in duple meter. It's in stuff that's divisible by two because we have two feet. Absolutely. You don't see a whole lot of marches in three. Oh, huh. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. <laughs> two <laughs> questions on that. And sea shanties, if you think about it, usually in six, eight because yeah. we're rocking yeah. back. We're, wait, we're not waltzing so two questions through on. the field? <laughs> I have seen a waltz. The Russian Navy used to do plenty of waltzes uh, oh my back gosh. in the day. Oh, yeah. But there two questions uh, for, the, for the panel, four of us. One... Is Popeye the Sailor Man a sea shanty? Jeff, yes or no? I would say probably not, okay. given the age of it is kind of past where the age of sail is. However, it probably was composed with that as an inspiration. Jordan, yes or no? Stylistically, absolutely yes. Beth, yes or no? Stylistically, Josiah. Uh, yeah, same. Stylistically, I would say yes. But yeah, I think Jeff's right in terms of like essence and origin. <clears throat> they used to sing that on World War II vessels. And second question, <laughs> what will we do with the drunken sailor? 
No one needs to answer that. Uh, oh, go ahead. Beth. <laughs> I would say put him in the bilge and make him drink. Yeah, it that's, that's the there we go. <laughs> Earl, oh Earl lie in the morning. Jeff, you had another bullet point here. Why don't you tell us about uh, who might have the first ban and why we all should be mad about it? Yeah, so the first college to have a ban was Notre Dame, um, a small school in South Bend, Indiana. Never heard of them. Um, in 1845, that actually kind of predates the Civil War and predates when a lot of um, their schools are actually founded after the Moral Langrad Act that is during the Civil War and during that right after the Civil War period. And all those schools were intentionally founded partially uh, with RTC in mind as well as um, your industrial training and agricultural training. VPI and Texas A&M students. are basically one big school connected underground. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry to derail you there. Go ahead, Jeff. <laughs> I'll say, I, you know what, Virginia Tech does uh, definitely educate people that are involved in the mining industry. It would not surprise me. So does A&M. Both, uh, both are folks that would know how to drill. Um, so if any two schools are connected underground in a secret tunnel of... <laughs> Of stuff, it might be the two of them. Um, so, in 1887, they were also the first um, school to have a band play at a football game. Um, which is the beginning of the wonderful connection of bands and football. Because everybody loves music in their sport. Um, and you also, in that period, you don't really have recorded music. So, if you have breaks in play and nothing is happening, nothing is happening. And you don't have the ability of a P announcer to play in music or do announcements in the same way you can in a modern era. Um, so you do have what's obvious is, okay, well, we've got a big group of musicians. Let's have them play in these gaps. Um, and obviously in the same period you have in ballparks and later in hockey arenas, you will have organists come. Um, that's one person, but that's a big infrastructure expense to build an organ. There's a reason that a lot of churches in the 20th century have electronic organs versus <laughs> physical organs is organs are really expensive. They also don't do good with weather. <laughs> um, having a lot of metal parts would, you know, rusts in if exposed to the elements. So it would kind of be a problem to, in a lot of the still really being built stadiums uh, to have giant exposed pipes. You heard it here first folks. Jeff is arguing for the all woodwind band. Hey, I'll double down on that. Done. <laughs> Beth and I Done. are both women players too. We're all in on this. Jordan, I want to uh, kind of <laughs> talk about that a little bit. So we've got this first band that shows up. They're playing at 1897. This is really, truly ancient football. Rules aren't really developed. It's still mostly rugby at the time. It's starting to develop into what most modern Americans would recognize as football. How is the band starting to mold that into modern Band plays after the touchdown. Band plays after points scored. Notre Dame unveils this uh, Notre Dame March or Victory March song, which may be bitten off Michigan Hail to the Victors. One may be bitten off the other. We're going to settle that bait today, by the way. But okay. Jordan, kind of walk me through how that happened. <laughs> now, this was, like Jeff said, that this is very much a thing where they needed something to fill the, the gaps in the play. Because football, sure. as we all know, is, isn't is like rugby where it's this continuous thing. And as we start adding more breaks in the play, there has to be something there. These early bands also, you got to remember, were very, again, as much as it pains me, these were brass bands. 
This is a very brass heavy thing. Mm-hmm. Military bands were also very brass heavy for the longest time because again, besides besides piccolos, which and fifes, which were an outdoor instrument, um, past there was there was a there was a sort of inflection point at the French Revolution where a lot of the the royal bands were woodwind heavy and they didn't survive the revolution. Let's put it that way. So afterwards, they had these big outdoor bands that were mainly brass and saxophone, which was a new thing at that point too. And so we start seeing this get into these football games where it's this brass band thing. They're playing marches, they're playing, which would be the pop music of the time. And they start filling in the gaps and becoming part of the traditions. You have these players who are there not just to support the team like fans, but they're becoming part of the infrastructure of the game. And that's why you see this very much, this this very clear connection between the rise of college football and the, and the rise of marching band. What a great plug for infrastructure. And Beth, I want to bring you in because I'm going to ask you a slightly different question on that end. Because we know that the Notre Dame victory song is their quote unquote fight song. And this is going to lead into my question to Josiah, actually. But where do these fight songs kind of get written? We all know that the Ohio State marching band, they, theirs came from a, a great whooping they took from Michigan. Notre Dame's came from maybe a different origin inflection point, and then other bands kind of jumped on that ticket. So why does the fight song come into existence? And and then that's going to lead directly into my infrastructure question for Josiah of why did we give them meaning? We get we get theme songs from all over the place, and some of them come from some very, very amusing places. Some of them are repurposed popular songs that get sort of riffed on. Some of them are things that students come up with. Uh, Jordan, what was the one that we were talking about on the podcast a couple of weeks ago um, that was... Uh, that was about the kid who got kicked out of school. Cornell, for, for Cornell, and set to the, set, set yeah, to the tune Cornell. of Give My Regard to Broadway. <laughs> That's our actual fight song. Yeah. <laughs> Yep. Um, they they come from all over the place and uh, they're really like they're expressions of those cultures. And it's important to remember how important band culture was at the time. We have football came up immediately prior to and during the Gilded Era. And in the Gilded Era, most most towns had many, many bands. Most companies had bands. We've sort of lost that now. But it was like if you had a company of more than 10 or 15 employees, you probably had a band um, that performed all the time. And at any company function, you think about it, you don't really have much in the way of recorded music at the time. Your band played. And so it was just a natural outgrowth of like a heavy amount of composition. Schools that had music programs would tend to use their own people. And it's it's just a really, really cool story in that these are natural outgrowths of the cultures that they came from. And so they tend to be hyper localized for where they came from. And that leads directly to my question, Josiah. Mm. We always talk about cultural infrastructure and then things having meaning. And so my chicken and egg question here is, does the fight song have meaning or was the fight song given meaning? Both. Um, it really does depend on the situation because, uh, you know, I know that's a cop out answer, but I mean, it, it's true. It's a great like, answer. It's true, though, but, you know, the, with any tradition at a university it matters because somebody said that it mattered and it and you know it's like the like mississippi state has a cowbell because a cow wandered onto the field during a game and then we came back and won after the cow did that and so we ring cowbells as a response to that we gave it meaning when something important like 
you two unrelated events constellated with each other and boom they were like hey that must have been a good luck charm let's just keep doing it or because we think it's funny we're like let's just make this cow thing a thing because we're the cow school or the ag college or the 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 white ag college in the state and so you know there you get that sort of thing um I mean, and, you know, as far as, like, it's unity to the sport, to add to what has also been said, like, you know, we're talking about the military influence, and militarism in early football was a huge thing, you know, the whole terminology, you've got things like platoons, you, you know, there was a big obsession with uh, using this as a replacement for war and combat, using it as a way to in- give give young men a masculinity that maybe they missed out on by not fighting in wars like their fathers or whatever. Um, and so, you know, you have this sort of play acting of war in the sport of football, which is where some of the brutality was encouraged. Not, not the only reason, but you know, then you have all this band culture that comes through some of that military side. And then like Beth was saying, you know, there's not, there's a lot of live music and it just all coalesces like, Oh, this is our military. We need a band for our military. Purdue's military needs a band or, you know, the Oklahoma A&M college needs a band for its, its pseudo military, you know, operation. So yeah, no, it's, yeah, it's, there's a lot of it. There's never one clean answer, which is fun, but also sometimes like, I just want to say something short, man, you know? I said we're going to solve this today, and we're going to do this today. <laughs> One word answer: Who came first, Michigan's "Hail to the Victor" or the Notre Dame victory march? Jeff, go. I don't want to give either of them credit. <laughs> Great, Jordan. Can I pass? Bam. Yeah, Jordan. One word answer is pass. Jordan, what do you think? Notre Dame. All right, Beth. What do you think? It pains me to say it, but Notre Josiah. Dame. Harvard. There it is. There would be no football stadiums without the uh, Harvard. I think they're, what are they, the Bulldogs? What's their mascot called? Crimson. No, that's Yale. The Crimson. Yeah, the Excuse Crimson. Me. The Harvard Crimson. Them. them, them, them so all, all, of your, all of your Harvard and Yale fans are going to get real angry you said Bulldogs. That's fine. You just, you, do you guys know what the oldest fight song is? I do not. Tell us. Boston College. Uh, huh? Oh, Boston Notre Dame's going to hate that. From 1919. <laughs> they're going to hate that. Yep. Uh, Je- Jeff, tell me about this giant block P that Purdue does on the field, and why do they do that? Yeah, so as we start in the early 20th century period, most of our bands continue coming out of ROTC, and they're very much based on military marching, which is typically in just kind of standard square, rectangular blocks. Um, and you do have some bands that actually still do very much this style of marching, Texas A&M. Um, still has this style of marching um obviously bands that are you know and that comes out of the fact that that band is based in the corps of cadets and a lot of bands that are still parts of militaries still are based around a kind of parade marching style and they still do quite a bit of that as their primary um expression you start to see bands try some different stuff in the early 20th century so the first actual formation that was not a rectangle um was Purdue's block p which is obviously still a very geometric pattern it is more or less was a set of blocks put together to form a p which makes a ton of sense if your school starts with the letter p <laughs> so that was the first band to break those standard ranks and 
do something different, which was a major innovation and a major change in band purely being this military thing to kind of having a little bit more flair and difference um, in entertainment. You also have in that 1907 season across the border in Illinois, uh, University of Illinois was the first band to perform during a halftime. Um, so this kind of combines and you start seeing development over over the years into what band eventually becomes. Um, and this kind of early 20th century period, much like it's speaking of what football really is at the same time as well with a lot of the rule changes um, and a lot of conferences now meeting up and organizing. It's really this embryonic period for all of it. No, absolutely. And I, one of the things I've always wondered about that, and, and I'm hoping Jordan and Beth can kind of walk us through this, but what has caused drill to evolve? Because if you're talking about the time that Jeff is in, it's mostly just letters, straight lines, maybe simple geometric shapes. How do we go from that to a single sousaphone or drum major starting at the 10 and then marching all the way to the 50 in a very flamboyant and camera-friendly manner that Ohio State might have co-opted at some point in their history, Jordan? This is, this is just a, a real outgrowth of what else can we do with this form? The form okay. is, I have a football field, here's my canvas. I have a football field, here are the yard lines, here are the hash marks, here's the space I'm going to work with. And then it started becoming, okay, can we do diagonals? Cool. Okay. Can we start doing curves? Well, that takes a little more work because you don't, you can't quite see it the same way. And then, I mean, God, nowadays, we'll talk about it a little later, but the the idea of using the, even the end zones or just the whole field becomes part of the canvas. You can go off the canvas. When you get to the very like, high-end art stuff in DCI, Drum Corps International, which is sort of the professional level of marching band, the idea of the field being limit, having limitations got smashed about 20 years ago. And now it's yes. all over the place. Yes. This I is, was in it, high school it, watching that. The cadets, it, it, actually, because they're from Jersey. Yes. It actually, it very much matches, uh, if, you, if you think of any art form, how you start with, okay, here's my canvas. What can I paint on the canvas? And then you start taking things to their logical extremes. Here's music. I'm going to, all this music, okay, how much, the John Cage thing, how much music can I pull out of music before it's still music? And you get to 433 where there is no sound. A very famous piece of his where it's just silence for four minutes and 33 seconds. And it's the same thing here of we're going to take this art form and just start nudging it and pushing it in all the directions we can to break it. So, Beth, I kind of want you to kind of follow up on that, because when we're looking at some of these very complex drill forms, I guess, like spelling out the word Ohio or sometimes with West Virginia, making the state of West Virginia and then playing uh, uh and I don't want to get the song wrong, but they're always playing a song that they know, okay, they're doing the West Virginia song, whether that's Take Me Home or the fight song. How do they create that? How do the artists then get involved into that format? So from a tech side, for the most part, they're using a program called Pyware that lets them map everybody on the field and set them through uh, motions and music. Uh, but the whole idea is that you want to create sort of scenes that exist. And then there are ways to transition in and out of those scenes. So those scenes are a moment where, okay, this is a recognizable image. And the band either freezes in that image or they take that image and they move it around the field. And then the band might break apart for a second and form another image. That's one way of doing it. Some 
that are more traditional marching for, marching formations, and I actually think in a way that's a little bit more complicated, have to stay within those traditional rules of how you march and how you do facing movements and everything else, and the image just sort of locks into place in one moment. It's it's really cool, and there's a number of ways to do it. And then you have your scatter bands where literally you just kind of run around, and all of a sudden, woo, here's something. My people. So... <laughs> Yeah, it's it's it is developed in lots of fascinating ways. I I wonder in some ways where that will head next. DCI always gives us some clues, but um it it's it's fascinating to watch how all of those things come together and um and when it's done, when it's really well done and when you've really hit upon the culture of the group that you're playing for, you'll hit the right image and the crowd just goes nuts. So it's very, very, very fun. Yeah, I'll say it's interesting with DCI because DCI very much it's the kinetic motion matters. Yes, more than the actual formations, um, yep. which is a very different trend. And you also have pass through there, double idea- time. Yeah, and straight lines are Flash. like relatively frowned upon because they're very hard to get right. Yep. It's way easier to do curves. And, yep. Way easier to yeah. do curves. Yep. Yeah. So, so it's very much a. Anytime you see anyone in straight lines, it is very easy to point out if one person's slightly off versus a curve. You can fudge a curve a little bit more, um, which is why particularly in drum court and bands that have um, influence from there do more curves and less straight lines because it's like, okay. So I actually uh, have a very quick, I was in marching band in high school and uh, my junior year we did the final movement that we did was we uh, had a small cube that started rotating and then lines would oh, feed yeah. into it and the cube would grow <laughs> and uh, i was a junior and at this point i think i've seen everything i asked our our assistant band director why do we why did we pick this for our final movement here and he looks at me and he says because it's in vogue and that was the first time i realized <laughs> that things come and go in the marching band space um mm-hmm. we actually had on a baseball diamond at our final competition one of the freshmen tripped and it completely ruined our event yep. and us ussba usbaa U- uh, uh no it's uh ussba yes ussba uh, sent a they sent a representative to apologize to us for putting us on an unsafe field and uh i was asked by the the president of the band to really grill into that guy because we weren't too happy. Um, Jeff, I know you're giving us an example and some timeline here. Is it okay if I jump in right at the yeah, right point? Yeah, absolutely. So we're up to 1907, which Jeff expertly brought us to, and I appreciate that. Immediately after that, we have the war to end all wars. And we now know that as World War One. And this is kind of the first time large, organized groups of African Americans are participating officially in the armed forces. So yes, during the... Uh, American Span- Spanish American War. There were black units, but they were kind of, kind of thrown together, kind of haphazard. World War One is really the first time that African Americans or people of the African diaspora are now. This is kind of the the grandchildren of the formerly enslaved the freedmen. So they're all joining this, and they're serving in Europe, and they're fighting for their country. And then their war's over. Victory for the Americans. Woodrow Wilson gives a great speech. League of Nations is founded, and they all come home. What do they do with those skills? Well, most of them were either cooks, mechanics, or they were in the band. And so they brought those skills back to the HBCU. So now we're talking about the later, the second moral act in, I think, 1890 1890 or 1892. So the HBCUs are kind of pulled out of that. And now they're bringing the idea of bands to these schools. And the first of which uh, is actually... 
Tuskegee. So at the time, you know, Tuskegee is kind of the urban black mecca. It's one of the bigger, it's one of the better known. The Tuskegee Airmen is what everyone, they hears that name, they think of it immediately. But Tuskegee Institute starts the first HBCU band. And they're showing up at their football games like other, like we look at some of the, the predominantly white schools. And they're like, well, we can do that too. And so they're showing up at the bands and they're starting to perform. And then in 1946, Florida Agricultural and Mechanical University, FAMU, says we're going to put the best 100 marchers on the field. And that's where we get the marching 100. And that's the first, the prototypical show HBCU band. Um, and they don't know where it came from. They have no idea. Nobody knows. Nobody can explain. They, they asked the, the professor emeritus, why do we do it this way? And he looked and he says, I have no idea. One year they said we want to dance. So we danced. Um, but if you ask the Rattler faithful, they'll tell you we started it all. You're all carbon copies of us. <laughs> and to some extent, there's some synchronicity where Alabama State had a band, Kentucky State, a little small HBCU in Kentucky had a band, Jackson State starts in the late uh, 40s, early 50s. These bands start to proliferate all through word of mouth and you know basically the network. But I want to kind of bring Josiah in here because this talks to kind of dueling cultural infrastructure. So you have... For example, you have the University of Mississippi, which is their well-known band. They're, they're playing all over the South. They're going to Memphis and losing football games there. But why do they have one style, but Jackson State, which is in the capital of the Magnolia State, has a completely different style altogether? A lot of that is going to speak to the um, respectability politics, the cultural you know, divisions that they get, that get created of, if you see a, I, it, I mean, you see it in the way that rules enforcement happens on the field and the way that rules were developed against different schools, like the university of Miami famously had rules developed based on just how they celebrated. <laughs> we're like, Oh, you can't do Correct. that anymore. Um, and it, and you know, if anything seen as prototypically not white, would be resisted to some degree, you know, and, and even silly things like, you know, not speaking to bands, but just like Michigan, when they had the Fab Five, and they like, they, they didn't wear that, it wasn't that weird, their uniforms were normal looking, but they were a little different, everyone's like, oh, is this a existential threat to basketball? Um, and so, you know, that is going to be part of it. And when you have a band like Mississippi, um, who adopts chants like the South will rise again and has a Confederate colonel as their mascot and proudly displays the uh, surrender flag of the, uh, the white supremacist uprising. Um, you know, they're, they're very excited about this dumb culture that isn't even part of the country they're in. And, and it's a racist culture. And so they're going to resist this sort of thing. And it's not Mississippi is telegraphing that more than a lot of other schools, but that, that attitude is going to be pervasive through so many schools. And even after segregation becomes largely illegal, you know, you still have the quotas where it's like, well, we're only going to have so many black players here. We're going to have only so many black students here. And so then you're not allowing people to bring their, their experience with them. And then when you see it, you say, well, no, you can't act that way. You can't act that way. That's not respectable, even though it is just as respectable as anything else. So they, they, you know, you create the divisions culturally through all these other things, and then you resist any cross pollination and pretend like 
you know, these HBCU bands that are amazing are somehow not as good as our whatever we're doing over here, which may be good too, but there's a lot that we could learn from each other if we just, you know, if the people with control allowed that to happen. But, you know, hatred is easy or hard or something. I don't know. Sure. Jordan, I kind of want to ask you about this because we're talking about the history of maybe like a very small section. We're talking about Alabama, Florida, but Texas is well known for having many HBCUs, two at the Division I FCS level, and then many smaller schools. How did some of that kind of make its way across? Because Tennessee State will tell you we're the most aristocratic band you've got, and Tennessee State, Nashville is very far from Tallahassee. You know, it was it was this, this cross-pollination where you have graduates of these programs that learn in a certain way. They then go on to get jobs leading bands at other schools. So you bring in the style that you know. And that's that's why there is, even though there like there is a vast difference between all those different programs, that there is a like a central DNA because a lot of those original directors came from the same spots. Like the FAMU bloodline is strong in all of these programs because a lot of the players in that band went to other schools, got jobs there. And all of a sudden they brought that same style. And and again, the crowds love it. And all of a sudden you have this great thing. In fact, in, in Texas, there's for high school, there's University Interscholastic League, UIL. But for the longest time, African-American schools and black schools were not allowed to participate in this. This was run by the University of Texas. And this is they control all competition at the state high school state level. That's band, all music, all academics, all sports. And black high schools were not allowed to participate. So Prairie View A&M created their own University Interscholastic League, uh, Prairie View University Interscholastic League. And they had their own judges and they brought in their own musicians. And so at those schools, that same tradition continued even at the high school level, which is great. It's not there anymore because once UIL opened up, a lot of that got, because UIL will tell you that that doesn't sound good. That's not, that's not our standard. And so a lot of those schools ended up changing to whatever the more predominant way was. But there was for a while this really strong core. So you have Prairie View graduates who learned from Florida A&M graduates who then went on and taught high school band and taught the same tradition. It was a really like it came out of an awful thing, but it had such a great impact on musicians of the state. Beth, I want to kind of make a connection between you and I. So in 2011, Norfolk State went to Morgantown and played the Mountaineers in football and had a lead at halftime. And that was the high point of Norfolk State football. They did. It was. Go ahead. I was very nervous. I, I was not because I was watching it unfold. And I said, why are all of West Virginia's backups in the first quarter? But I want to ask you a question. The Norfolk, the, the Legion went to that game. And they were, they played at halftime because they, we got the lead and they, they blew it out. If I remember correctly, how, how does that experience of, okay, so fine. We're, we're, we're not going to be on the same, you know, Nova state will never be D one or probably won't be after they, if the $5 million comes in fine for me, keep the celebration bowl, love it dearly. How does that proliferation also work where West Virginia has a visiting team, they pay them X hundred thousand dollars and then they bring their band and it's like, we might not win in a field, but we, we're going to win in your minds and hearts. Mm -hmm. um, especially in a school that already has a pretty strong band culture and, and WVU is definitely one. It was really cool to be sitting in the stands, you know, I'm, uh, and to be sitting with my, with 
a lot of family who have never experienced that style of uh, that style of band before and to hear what they had to say about it um you know i i sit in the middle of white people heaven whenever i'm <laughs> at west virginia games and it's amazing uh whenever something that is different and awesome is there it's it's good for all of us and i I distinctly remember sitting um, with a couple of folks who I've sat with since I was like six who were like, this is really good. I didn't know the bands could do this. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, they can. They absolutely can. And in fact, I think they should. (laughs) (laughs) And it's it's an amazing kind of a moment. And I think it's one of those things. As football fans, we can sometimes lament the like the rent a win idea, but it allows for these mashups that are darn near impossible in so many parts of our country for lots of awful reasons and you know for that alone i was thrilled that norfolk state came and i hope you will come again our team is awful you might win (laughs) well hold on we got a new coach i gotta i go whip that guy into shape jordan i know you had a point and then i want to turn it back over to jeff so he can kind of literally get this boilermaker train back on the tracks Sure. I, I just wanted to also mention that, you know, a really recent example of this kind of thing of wanting that that band, wanting that band sound like to come to your place. Uh, when UCLA set up the game against Alabama State this past year, yep. they paid for the band to come specifically. They sure did. Because that's what they wanted that. My my father-in-law went to the game. He's a UCLA season ticket holder. And like I was getting, he's like, this is the best thing ever. Oh my God, I love this. This is great. The UCLA band was jamming out. They were hanging out with the, with the, uh, the Alabama state band, like it was like, that is such a part of that, of that football culture. And you got it. You got to have them. You, you want that. It's so, it's so tied in. You want to have the band there. You got to have the band. there. The Legion performing at the Rose Bowl parade was such a marquee moment for the yes. band. There's a seat that, and I'm sorry to step over you real quickly, Jeff, but they played California love Ugh. and you can see the, uh, the Univision, Anchors were holding California flags, and they were—they didn't know it was coming. Like they were kind of like, "Oh, Labor uh, uh, Rose Bowl Parade." And then when they played that song, they—I mean, it was like the whole world opened up to them, and they everyone loved the Legion. And I told Jordan, and I, I still mean this, and I'm very grateful to you pointing that out because it—it it literally brought tears to my eyes to see the Legion venerated and loved the way that I love them. So I will always be grateful to you for that, Jordan. Uh, Jeff, why don't you tell us about? how things evolve, what happens next. Yeah, I think this kind of goes back to what we were talking about. There have been multiple styles developed, and all of them are good. They're all very different. Um, I mean, it's very much similar to food or wine or beer or anything, where it's there are a million different styles of various things. They're all absolutely acceptable. None of them are really better than, than the other. They're just different. Um... With some some sh- you know shocking similarities sometimes where there are some major similarities stylistically between HBCU bi- HBCU bands and what Ohio State does absolutely, which is bizarre to say, but is very much much true. There there's two HBCUs there are, in Ohio, both of them across the street from Ohio State. Go ahead though, Jeff. I apologize. I didn't mean to step yeah. over you there. But I just yeah. want to point that out. And so yeah. So you have a lot of different influences, and some of that is as popular music changes, incorporating different styles of popular music, um, where, yeah, in your early time period of bands, popular music 
are marches. They are things designed for marching band. Popular music evolves. You have jazz that's still designed around, you know, horns, but it's typically a smaller set of instrumentation. You have then popular music really goes away from that being the instrumentation, but you still have, you know, do we keep playing or some of the traditional older stuff, which you do to an extent, but also you have to bring in other newer popular music and adapt that. And how you adapt that can vary tremendously um, over time from, from band to band and, you know, arranger to arranger. Um, you also have how, how you develop your formations and how things over change over time. Are you doing still purely straight lines and blocks? Are you, you know, take an or are you doing mostly straight blocks, but you're trying to make those recognizable shapes or are you doing kind of abstract things, but things that move really cool. So you're, you're bringing in a DCI influence um, are you bringing in groups like twirlers or dance teams? Um, are you doing a high stepping style? Are you maintaining a more roll step military style? And that has changed over time. And a lot of bands do, do both. Um, Purdue does a very traditional, um, high step for their pregame. Typically it is a roll step for halftime. And part of that is you can't do the same things kinetically as you're playing you also how sound how music sounds can vary depending on how you're marching it is harder to maintain a constant sound while you are going up and down while you are moving at that rate um, and that also impacts how bands sound if that is going to then be what the character of the music is um, are you doing things with horn movements? Um, are you incorporating now that you have PAs in most stadiums, do the PA announcements now become part of the show? Are you doing humor through those that coordinates with the music and coordinates with, um, the formations, which is what a lot of bands do. Shout out to, um, shout out to all the Ivy league bands, except for Cornell, who do scatter bands and some of the worst jokes I've ever heard. And just pumping that out weekly for awful jokes. It's great. Proud of them. UVA used to have a scatter band. Used to. It used to be a proper Commonwealth. And, and and my mob and my Stanford band. Go ahead there, Jeff. Sorry to step over you. Yeah. And you you obviously have kind of developing parallel to marching bands and college colleges. You have DCI, which was typically sponsored by groups like VFW in a town um, or Boy Scout troops. And now as kind of independent organizations, although some still actually have connections to no, those original things were um, Madison Scouts, for example, are still, I think, technically a Boy Scout troop. Yeah. Um, but you've had developments through there, and they then feed back through because people will have done that and then become band directors. Um, and so you've Color Guard coming from that. You've Pits, um, which are um, typically mallet instruments. Timpani, Not the school, Beth. Not the school. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, uh, Jeff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that that is a different thing that some, some bands do, some bands bands don't do and you know that was i came out of a core style background in high school so i'm very used used to that and there's also it can make up for you don't always have enough people playing low brass instruments to actually get good balance so it very much can help if you can have a timpanist if you could have someone on bass guitar there that can actually help with that balance the big 10 for a very long time did not allow amplification of bands which is why you typically don't have pits in bands in the big 10 um I think they've loosened up some of those rules, but I think a lot of bands are still hesitant to do some some changes 
there. Um, you have color guard come in, um, which are flags. Originally, the the flags were done kind of just oh we're holding a flag walking around. That obviously evolved in time of hey we're spinning or we're actually using sabers or um, uh, rifles, which are real sabers or rifles. They're kind of show things. But so you're. Your flag teams have have evolved um, and color guard for that. You've also had changes in the technology of instruments. So um, in terms of bass drums, you typically used to have just one big size. You have evolved that into different sizes that have different tones that you can then do tonal sounds up and down um, and tonal bass lines. Drum heads started out as being animal skin, historically. Sure. And then you had those replaced by mylar and other synthetic fibers. And then those have been replaced by Kevlar because there was a desire of, hey, we want the ability to for people to hear greater and greater um, complicated and technical things. And the faster you play at some point on a less tight head, it just all sounds like mush. So you crank tighter and tighter. There's a point at which you break, you know, an animal skin, a point at which you break mylar, a point that you have to do Kevlar. So it's not the in, uh, military industrial complex creeping into DCI. <laughs> I mean, it's gotten less militaristic over time, which is okay, the interesting thing. What's What's fascinating to me, especially about drums, is the things that we have that we've moved forward, and the things that we expressly haven't, even though it's not a really great idea. The best example of that I can come up with is traditional grip playing for yeah. snare. Yes. Traditional grip playing for snare, which is where one of your hands faces upward and one of your hands faces downward, was designed because the snare drum was originally called the side drum. It was played to the side at an angle. And so when one of your hands is up, it actually makes sense and it's more ergonomically sound. When we take the snare drum and we set it down and move it and make it level, now you're doing terrible things to your wrist. But you'll see drum lines still do it because it looks cool, even though it is awful for you um you'll see you'll see some bands that get to look down on because they're playing in matched grip where both of their hands face down but like no if you're going to be in a cool drum line you have to play in the cool military style that only made sense when we raked our drums at a 45 degree angle oh and Sorry, people now <laughs> even though you with the harnessing that the like default setup is a flat they will in fact set it up so it's 45 so it is better ergonomically to do traditional grip um, and that also influences how you can march of how your, how a snare drum is set up. Um, Wisconsin does the weirdest marching. Oh boy. Uh oh. Weird specific Big Ten stuff. All right, here we go, folks. Yeah. So in most, most bands, it's a, okay, if you were, if you have a, a drum, if you were using a traditional rope harness, it's set up so that you'll normally have one foot doesn't go up nearly as far. One foot does, does a normal high chair. If you're doing high chair, um, a lot of bands have moved away from doing that. They'll do a roll step. You can walk and march somewhat normally with a snare drum. Wisconsin decided to be insane and they wear harnessing like a, a normal harnessing drum goes down where it normally does. They still want to do, high-stepping in their drum line. So the snare drums just kind of have a really wide stance so the drum can sit in front of them, and then they still do the high chair. It is... Wisconsin does weird psycho things. For, that's psycho behavior. Yeah. Um, the Wisconsin band has a reputation of... 
Oh boy! No, no, no! Our lawyers aren't on. Our lawyers are not on the call. No, absolutely not. They have a reputation, and this has led to basically no other school wanting their band to travel to them. It also helps the Wisconsin Athletic Department for a very long time would not provide sufficient numbers of seats for the rest of the Big Ten's bands. So people just it's just a very lack of reciprocity for wanting bands to go to or come from the University of Wisconsin. Um, which is means that basically to see the Wisconsin band, you have to go to a game at in Madison, which Madison is a wonderful town. Um, but obviously, that means you're not you're not seeing them everywhere in the Big Ten. Does anybody know how many seats are in Camp Randall? Just just curious. Seventy something. Eighty thousand. Okay. So I I want to stump for the PA um, because HBCU bands have the PA announcer um, and. I can speak directly to my experience in Norfolk State. Uh, we had um, uh, Jackie Bowe. He was the longtime announcer. He was there for a long... He was a uh, Norfolk State alumni, and he did it as a student, and he did it until he passed, which was in 2021. Um, but one of the things he always said that stood out to me, and I remember the first time I heard it um, at the Labor Day Classic when the Legion took the field, was, let the heavens resound from your magnificent sound and let every musical measure be a source of auditory pleasure and always behold the green and gold. And uh, that always stuck out to me personally uh, as having the PA be involved. But enough of that. We've appetized it up, Jeff. And again, I'm always blown away by how much research you put into this. Let's get to the main story and talk about these turkey necks or these regular necks or just neck in general. Where does it come from, and why do we do it? So the band Cameo, who, by the way, is awesome, um, played they are. actually a bunch of their stuff in, in college. Our, our band, one of our uh, band directors at Purdue, very much uh, like their stuff. Uh, they put off out an album in 1984 called "She's Strange," and one of the songs on there uh, is called "Talking Out the Side of Your Neck." And I am going to see this. And I can share it. I got it queued up, so I can share it. If you, you got it queued up, I got it queued up. I'm ready. Okay, I'm I'll ready. Go there, since I think you've you've had better success uh, getting stuff going. All right, um, can, every, can everybody about, see? Can see it a little bit about cameo. Um, yeah, please, please. They were formed in 1974 by Larry Blackman. Um, the title track of the album "She's Strange" was their first uh, number one hit on the R&B charts. It also, uh, the album was also number one on the R&B charts. Uh, the song that we're about to talk about is the third track of that album. Also got a single um, and got a ton of radio airplay. Hey everybody, it's Blue. Uh, during the podcast, you might've heard me say, hey, I'm gonna go ahead and play it now. But we ran into the haint and we were unable to do that. So we actually split this episode into part one and part two. And what you just listened to was part one. And we're going to kind of try to work on part two where we actually got it to work so that you can hear the versions of Neck being played. Uh, both should be in your feed. So you'll have part one and part two, but hopefully we'll be able to get that together and you can enjoy the entire podcast uh, in its entirety. Um, as always, don't forget to feed your master. 